Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hi guys, James from the Stock Club Podcast here with your final reminder that our in-person event in New York City is just one week away. Next Friday, the 8th of November, Emmett Savage will be live on the ground hosting this inaugural seminar in Manhattan talking about how he has beaten the market for the past 20 years. This event will give you a clear understanding of how you can achieve the same results with your own portfolio and is suitable for all levels of investors. There are just six seats left for in-person in New York, so if you want to grab one of those remaining seats, go to inperson.mywallstreet.com. That's inperson.mywallstreet.com and get your ticket today. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast, coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James, with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor Emmett Savage and our head analyst Rory Caron. Today, we're talking about Google potentially buying Fitbit, Twitter getting rid of political ads and what's going on with iRobot. So guys, we're in the middle of earnings season here at the moment, and there are plenty of stories to do with that. But what I wanted to kick off today was about something that has nothing to do with earnings. And um, The reports that Alphabet is interested in buying Fitbit. So shares in Fitbit have jumped more than 40% this week off the back of a rumour that Alphabet is interested in buying the company. No price has been mentioned yet, and the companies are still in negotiations. But um, Rory, I want to come to you first. Do you think Fitbit would be a good acquisition for Alphabet? Did, is that story even confirmed yet? Or it's rumours, rumours. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this I mean, there was a bit of confusion this week because there was two companies that became big acquisition targets. The first was, as you mentioned, Fitbit being acquired by Google. It was reported in Reuters, who just a few weeks ago had, had actually broke the story that Fitbit was exploring a sale in the first place. Um, but very important to note, it hasn't been confirmed by either uh, by either company. So at the moment, it is really just rumours. Um, you know, it's it's... It's funny, every time we talk about companies or every time we recommend a new stock, one of the first questions we ever get is, do you think this company could be acquired by someone else or who do you think might acquire this company? Yeah. I think I think that's something that a lot of kind of maybe um, starting investors, new investors kind of, it's 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 hard to understand sometimes how a stock moves up and down in the, in the market when you think about things like sentiment because it's often hid behind financial numbers that to a layman probably doesn't make a lot of sense. Like why does beating uh, your estimates by one cent make the stock go this percent? Or why does missing revenue by this much make it go down this much? Okay. Whereas a buyout is so clear cut. It's yeah. like someone else is buying the company. And see, it's seen, like it's very concrete and you kind of get in the sense, all oh, right, well, someone wanted to buy it for more than that. Therefore, that was what its value was. Um, but never, I, don't, I think this is a great piece of advice, never buy a stock in anticipation of it being acquired because 99.9% of the time, that just won't work out. Yeah. Most mm. times you hear any rumours of stocks being acquired or any chatter on the on Twitter, it's just people talking. Just, just talk, just, yeah. yeah. And, and even if, even if uh, you know, talks get to a certain level, maybe there is an offer, maybe they sit down and start talking 
trying to hammer out a deal, it still probably won't happen because this is huge money we're talking about, billions and billions of dollars. Most acquisitions, as we know, destroy shareholder value. So companies are very careful when they do do them. Uh, The few times that there is a a good acquisition is what, or companies that I think do acquisitions quite well are the ones that do bolt-on acquisitions. So they don't they don't try and combine the companies with their own company. They don't try and find out all these synergies. They basically just buy a company and be like, right, you belong to us now. Keep doing your thing. Yeah. And um, PayPal is a really good example of that. They've done some great acquisitions and just left them kind of do their thing over yeah. the years. Um, in terms of Fitbit, I think like this has been a rumor that's been going on for an awful long time. This report kind of set the the stock jumping. We still don't know whether it's going to happen. Um, but it's been really clear for a while now that Fitbit couldn't remain a standalone company. Yeah, it's been struggling. I was just looking before we went in. It, Fitbit stock is currently about ninety percent down from its all time highs, and it's it's just had a had had a rough few years. Yeah, they just look. They never found a place for themselves in the market. You know, Apple was always going to dominate the high end. Um, and then, you know, dominating the low end is difficult. You've yeah. got Chinese competitors like uh, Xiaomi coming in. You know, they can sell for much cheaper. That puts pri- pricing pressure pressure on Fitbit. There was a while where I thought Fitbit would be able to kind of carve out a uh, market for themselves as the kind of good enough option. You know, it wasn't it wasn't as good as an Apple Watch but it did the basics that people wanted Yeah, and you know there was a, they did a big deal with Target I think in 2015 where Target bought all their employees uh, Fitbits to try and increase get them to go to the gym more and trying to get them to be a bit healthier those kind of deals just never really materialised um, you know Google makes perfect sense for them they're trying to get into the hardware space watches are going to be part of that and what else does Google really like? It loves data, and Fitbit data, has yeah. an awful lot of data. Now, for I mean, for one point five billion, I think they're getting an awful lot. They're getting a, a, a strong enough brand, possibly you know years and years of data that's been collated. Um, and there might be a couple of other watchmakers who are looking at that, thinking, "God, we can't let them get away with that." Yeah, but um, yeah, no, it's going back to that kind of that. There, you were talking about Tiffany there too, and and rumors that they were going to be potentially bought out by Louis Vuitton, is it? Yeah, so these are more than rumours now because okay. uh, the rumours started last Friday that Louis Vuitton, Moet Hennessy, to give it its full name, uh, were interested in acquiring Tiffany's. Mm. Uh, then this on Monday, both companies confirmed that an offer had been made. I think it was $14.5 billion. Uh, so that's more than the rumour now. There is there is an offer on the table. Um, it's no secret I'm a big fan of Tiffany's. I think it's got one of the strongest brands in the world highlighted by their incredible gross margins. Like that company makes 60% gross margins in an industry where most companies struggle to make 35, 40. Yeah. Um, for Louis Vuitton, it makes really perfect sense because they're trying to expand their jewellery business, which is surprisingly only 9% of their revenue. I really thought for such a massive... Only 9%? Yeah, 9% of their total revenue comes from watches and jewellery, which okay. I think like for a luxury powerhouse like Louis Vuitton, I thought would be... Um, would be much higher and yeah. buying Tiffany's would basically double that so yeah. uh, the the other thing is that Tiffany as much as I like them they've got an awful lot of headwinds coming at them at the moment there's a there's been a real slowdown in foreign tourism to the US which is one of their biggest markets yeah Chinese tourists specifically I think yeah. are a huge um, sales driver for them yeah they love coming flying into New York with a bit of money with a bit of cash in their pocket and going down to the flagship store in Manhattan and buying Tiffany's jewellery that's slowed down there's a potential consumer slowdown in China which again another huge market for them yeah. and Hong Kong is just again like 
Tiffany seemed <laughs> to have the worst luck with their store locations. You know, for a couple of years, they had those protests outside Trump Tower, which yeah. was causing them problems. Now, Hong Kong, which is, you know, in, I don't know how, how long that those protests have been going on, but that's 5% of their international revenue. And it's right wow. in the heart of Hong Kong where those protests are happening. Protests, so, yeah. um, it looks like a good, I think it's a good deal for them right now. But, you know, as we said, you never know what's going to happen with M&A. Uh, there was a, a rumour out today, we're going back to rumours now, but there was a rumour <laughs> out today that um, insiders in Louis Vuitton had said they wouldn't go more than $5 higher than their initial price. And the stock's actually trading right around there at the moment. Okay. So, um, But you never know, there could be private equity coming in, possibly from China, and there might be a bidding war. So Yeah, just to come back then to the, the kind of broad idea of acquisitions, Emmett, I know there's been a few companies acquired from the My Wall Street shortlist to date. Um, and I always get the sense in here that it's a sense of disappointment kind of when a company is acquired quite often. It's, it's not what we set out to do when we're yeah. investing in a company. Yeah, no question or doubt about it. Think about 11 of the, st- of the stocks from our so showroom are, that, from yeah. our app have been acquired. And I'd say at least half of those caught the three of us by surprise. Uh, like MindBody jumps to mind where mm. right out of the blue, uh, a private equity firm bought them. You could not predict that. And as Rory said, um, you know, you, if you buy a stock or a business rather and, uh, with the expectation that it's going to be bought out, you're really not going in with the right frame of mind. Yeah. And to your question, I suppose, James, we buy stocks because we assess the very long-term strategic advantages of these businesses, which very often takes very, very many years to actually play out. And when a company is bought out, generally the acquirer has decided that they're uh, sitting at a value point that's below where they should actually sit. So, I mean, that's implicit by the sheer virtue of the fact that they're being bought out. So we're not fans of acquisitions per se. Yeah. There are occasionally times where you get a payday sooner above the level that you expected. But generally, we have been disappointed to see acquisitions of stocks that we've picked, whether it was Mesor Robotics or Buffalo Wild Wings. We've seen companies that we believe will do it on their own yeah. and will do better on their own. Yeah, over the long uh, run. But definitely. those forces come to play and the management teams from both sides come to an arrangement that we cannot genuinely uh, influence. Yeah. yeah, there's been a couple, like I've been bought out of a couple of stocks and I just have never been happy about it. Yeah. You know, you you like you see that thirty percent pop, and you're like, hey, yes. but then you're like, no, I expected uh, yeah. so much yeah. more. Mind body was one. I thought that had way more room to run. Oh, entirely. Laser that you mentioned was yeah. a big one. Yeah, it's just it's it's, it seems like it should be a moment of celebration. Maybe That's it right. is if you buy a stock and it gets acquired. You know, two months later, happy days. Yeah. But, yeah. Um, I assume win. the I assume the shareholders shareholders of Fitbit will be happy enough with this. Yeah. <laughs> but it generally forces it forces sorry to but it forces a tax event on you as well. Yes. Yeah, Unless you're in a tax protected structure, um, with a pension or a four hundred one K, you are going to um you, you have to pay your capital gains mm, tax and yeah. that might have been in your plan. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll keep an eye on those two stories um, over the next few weeks. The next thing I want to talk about is Mark Zuckerberg. Who else? Uh, it's back in front of Congress again last week facing questions from the House Financial Services Committee over Facebook's new planned cryptocurrency, Libra. Zuckerberg got a bit of a grilling, Rory. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's hilarious that they said this was a, like, 
going to be a chat about Libra. It was I, there was so little mention of Libra. <laughs> it yeah, was basically it was. just like <laughs> every congressman who's ever had a problem with Facebook just gets to grill this elusive CEO. Yeah, it's, over. it's kind of hard to watch sometimes. Yeah. It's just yeah. like like I'm I'm definitely someone who has no sympathy for Mark Zuckerberg, but even watching I was like it's ridiculous some of the questions he has to answer yeah, yeah well, I mean one of them like they asked him about everything from Cambridge Analytica there was people asking about child exploitation there was one guy I don't know how this guy <laughs> he just he seems a bit mad uh, Bill Posey I think he's from Florida asked him if he was 100% sure that vaccinations pose no harm to anyone on earth. <laughs> Zuckerberg just was like, what? How, are, how do you expect You're an answer kidding. to that? You're kidding. They did not ask him did, that. yeah. I mean, it was, he kind of had a point about free expression and what like, yeah, uh, Facebook allows put, be put on the, the platform. Um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, AOC, really took him to town. Uh, she started talking about a number of hypothetical scenarios in which he could use this new... Uh, policy of not fact-checking political ads to yeah. basically see what she could get away with. And um, Zuckerberg's response that he thought it was bad to lie uh, <laughs> didn't really inspire much confidence. Yeah, well, uh, well in, speaking yeah. then of political advertisements, Twitter have come out today, just before we came up to record, and uh, said that they're not taking any political advertisements anymore. Yeah, I know. Uh, Jack Dorsey yesterday in a tweet basically set out that no there's not going to be no more um, political advertising on uh, Twitter he did it about an hour before Zuckerberg was scheduled to do his quarterly conference call which I'm sure is entirely a coincidence <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, yeah he, uh, he he took some stabs at Zuckerberg didn't mention him by name in the in the Twitter thread um, but you know Zuckerberg has come out with uh, all these kind of free freedom of expression arguments in defense of Facebook's policy and one of Jack's tweets was uh, it's not credible for us to say we're working hard to stop people from gaming our system to spread misleading info but if someone wants to pay us to target and force people to see their political ad well they can say whatever they want and he put a little winky face in there <laughs> so I mean that was uh, obviously uh, obviously a dig at Zuck um, but I think this is just a brilliant move by Twitter uh, the company will say it's about principles and there might be some small truth to that um, but really, it's what uh, Ben Thompson from Strategy calls strategy credit, yeah. um, which he defines as an uncomplicated decision that makes a company look good relative to other companies who face much more significant trade-offs. Okay. Um, the example he gave when he coined that term was Apple when they came out with their their uh, pledge on consumer privacy. You know, for the, for Apple, that that really removed them from the entire privacy argument, yeah, and put the focus squarely back on Google and Facebook. However, you know, user data isn't really that important to Apple's business model. So that was a really easy decision for them to make. But made um, them look very good. But made them look very good. I think this is exactly what's happening with Twitter. Uh, they brought in $3 million in uh, advertising revenue from the 2018 midterm election, which is just nothing. Yeah, like very low. That's These guys make $3 billion a year in sales. Yeah. So to them, this is nothing. Whereas Facebook, we know, has taken in 8 $857 million on political advertising since May 2008 and Google's brought in $122 million in the same time. So Twitter's basically being like, it's not on us anymore, but it's not really affecting them. It's affecting their comp their competitors. So they're, they're kind of tapping out of a race they were never really part of. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and like, you know, the... the this issue of political advertising is not going to go away anytime soon. There's going to be more hearings. Yeah. And it's, you know, Jack Dorsey doesn't want to be sitting there. <laughs> and and he, for three million quid, he's just bought himself out of that. Yeah. Uh, he, that flight to Washington. Like <laughs> so, were either of you guys a fan of Silicon Valley? 
the show. I've never watched it, but I want to. I've oh, never it's, watched it. It's either. one of the funniest and the most real shows I've ever seen. It's hilarious. But series season six has just kicked off, and the main character, the protagonist Richard, uh, discovers that his promise that his company Pied Piper won't collect user data is under threat. And uh, the opening scene is almost character for character like that famous uh, recent image of uh, Zuckerberg going into Congress and that ocean of photographers in front of him and it's absolutely hilarious and in fact it is so close to the bone on on matters that are current it yeah. really is one of the best shows I've seen yeah. and, and utterly hilarious C- just couldn't to, recommend it more Just to loop back around to that Congress hearing I think my favourite quote from it was when um, Zuckerberg was given his like pre-prepared um, opening remarks and he said um, I believe this is something that needs to get built but I understand we're not the ideal messenger right now <laughs> I, it was just perfect that, you know and, and I think we all agree that, that, that something like Libra cryptocurrency like that is there's definitely a place in the world but just not Facebook didn't he say something like I bet I'm, I'm sure people wish there was anyone but Facebook delivering <laughs> this product at least he has some self-awareness yeah I think Libra's dead in the water anyways so yeah, yeah, I think so. yeah absolutely so that is Facebook and Libra let's move on now to the company we never talk about um, for this week's company we never talk about we're taking another request from Twitter and talking about one of the stocks in our app that was once the top performer in our shortlist iRobot Emmett what's going on with iRobot these days so iRobot, um, let me just explain what the company is and what they do to kick off. So since the, the introduction of iRobot's Roomba robot vacuum in 2002, iRobot has sold more than 25 million robots and has become the leading global consumer robot company. Yeah. So iRobot's product line, there's three kind of families of products that they have. Two will be familiar to those people who are in this, you know, interested in these kind of things. Roomba is the the robot voc- vacuums. Yeah. Brava is the robot mops. And the other two products that are new are the Terra, which is their new robot lawnmower, okay. which I think is only for sale in Germany at the moment. Yeah. Uh, under trial and then the fourth product which I'm quite certain no one in this room will ever buy is called the Root which is a coding robot okay. <laughs> uh, although our colleagues downstairs I'm sure excitedly will be buying one when they can uh, so since 2018 or in 2018 rather iRobot generated almost 1.1 billion dollars in revenue it employed more than a thousand of what they say is the robot industry's top professionals and their ticker is IRBT So iRobot, um, round middle of April of this year, the stock was sitting at about 130 bucks. Today it's below 50 bucks, so it has dropped more than 60%. So what we're going to try and do here is dive into the why and if it is in fact still a good stock to hold or buy. Okay. So what's up? At the very top, the CEO, the founding CEO, Colin Angle, and his team slashed iRobot's profit outlook, as well as reducing revenue guidance for third consecutive quarter. So the CEO for three quarters in a row has come out and he's given bad news. Mm. And that has been reflected in the share price and hence a 60% drop. But we have to go deeper to see really, well, what, why, why is he, why has he given three consecutive uh, revisions, three quarters? So going deeper, there's three factors at play. First and foremost, uh, iRobot are cutting prices. 
okay. because there are substitutes available. And case in point, only yesterday, I bought the latest Roomba from my home and very nearly bought a substitute for 20% of the price, um, which begs the question, what did I go for iRobot at all? Yeah. And it's, it's uh, for me in part, the brand, it's being a shareholder, it's one to capitalize on my familiarity with a product I've owned for years. We've had a Roomba in our house working away for six years and in our home we're a fan of it. As a, as a domestic product, I'm a huge fan. I didn't want to kind of risk it by buying uh, a cheap substitute, mm. although that cheap substitute might be just as good. I do not know. Uh, but going beyond my own buyer's choice, uh, gross profit recently, the margin fell from 47 but fell to 47% from around 51% a year ago. and the, But the average selling prices are still rising. Um, so the average selling price in 2019 so far of a, an iRobot product is just over $300. And last year it was about $290. But the higher cost of production for new vacuums and mops is reducing the overall profitability. So that's the first of three factors. They are cutting prices. Yeah. The second factor is... Uh, they are slowing growth in the US. And that's that's a big deal. So unit sales rose 4% year on year in the third quarter uh, in the US, bringing the volume growth down to 8% over the last nine months. Uh, and just to put that in perspective, a year ago at the same point in 2018, uh, heading into the Christmas and holiday season, iRobot's year-to-date volumes are up 21%. Okay. So you can kind of get a, you can see the, the, the growth curve is starting to plateau. Um, and that said, revenue jumped 25% in international markets um, and globally revenue rose 9%. So it's slowing in the US, but the world is a big place mm. of which the US is a big player, but there is a big demand uh, and a big opportunity around the world for domestic robots. And I really think on the big picture, we're only at the beginning of domestic robots helping around the home. Yeah. And then the third uh, point uh, that has really started to crush iRobot, and it's the unavoidable, and the big one is that any business doing uh, producing or selling into or from China uh, has tariffs. Yeah. So in other words, trade wars. Trade war. And almost all of iRobot's problems at the moment can be in some way tied to China. Yeah. So when I listened into the Q3 conference call, Angle, the CEO, said, uh, and I quote, although our third quarter results were strong, sell-through following our late July price increases was suboptimal. Given this outcome and our belief that uh, the RVC, which is the robot vacuum uh, uh, robot vacuum cleaner category was at a growth inflection point prior to tariffs. So in other words, things were good before the tariffs yeah. kicked in from China. And he said, we elected to roll back our pricing to pre-tariff levels on most of our products. We believe this action in combination with robust investment in R&D and our go-to-market activities will help us defend our category leadership. So it's quite a mouthful there. You mm. really have to think hard, actually, what is he saying? Uh, but Steve Singmanton at The Motley Fool wrote a great piece, which I read last night, and he noted that Colin Angle also predicted in early 2018, I quote, this is a moment in time where over the next three years, the true winners in a consumer robot industry are going to be determined for the next decade. And then uh, our friend at the Motley Fool went on to observe that we are now one and a half years into iRobot's self-imposed three-year window and time frame for establishing what could be a decade's worth of market leadership. Yeah. 
Uh, and judging by Angle's last words, iRobots move to pre-tariff pricing. It's clear that the company really wants to prioritise market share above anything else. So so kind of the, the long and short of it is with, there's, there's these kind of headwinds that iRobot really has no control over things like the trade war and, and rising costs and stuff. That's so it. the focus for the company at the moment is on maintaining that kind of brand awareness and that market share in the space. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's just take a, a helicopter view of the numbers. So yeah. uh, iRobot, as they say, narrowed its outlook to call for full year 2019 revenue of $1.2 billion compared to the last target they said, which was $1.25 billion. Yeah. So there hasn't been a huge drop in the anticipated revenue uh, by percentage amount, of course. Um, they expect operating income of $75 million to $80 million, which was down from $75 million to $100 million. So they're still in the same ballpark. And they anticipate earnings per share um, between two bucks sixty and two bucks eighty, and previously it was going to be between two bucks forty and three bucks fifteen. Yeah. So the numbers haven't changed wildly. So the question I think that matters is: Do I like iRobot today? Mm. Because it's a fifty book stock, so it's a one point four billion dollar business with a known brand. It has a long term vision, a founding CEO growing revenue and growing profit and future relevant products with more cash than debt and down 60% from its highs. Uh, yes, I still <laughs> like iRobot. I like iRobot more now than I have done for a while. And it seems when you look at iRobot's long-term uh, share price graph, it seems like it's, it's, it's really struggling to mm. get that kind of growth into the story but every single year it's a decidedly better business than it was a year ago okay. and when you look at all the numbers year and year they get better and better and better meaningfully better whereas the stock price just kind of rolls upwards and it has fallen down and indeed it was our number one performer for a while but yeah. uh, I think it will rise again yeah. uh, I very much do but uh, I'm not in the business of predicting how things will go in China and I have to acknowledge that it will have an influence on the business over the, uh, you know, yeah. foreseeable future. So a few short-term headwinds probably still in store for the, the stock, but overall you're, you're still quite bullish on iRobot. I am. I, I just cannot think of another business that has such a big brand Yeah. that's valued at 1.4 billion. It's kind of currently valued less than Fitbit. Yeah. Um, and uh, and it still is very, very future relevant. Okay. I think it's, I think it's a, a very nice business. Great. Cool. So that was iRobot, the company we never talk about. Um, before we move on, I just want to point out there's lots of great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the minute. And now, as as of this week, you can also enjoy it on the web too. We've launched our desktop version of the My Wall Street app, which means you can now enjoy our market beaten stock picks and stock of the month reports on any device. You can check it out right now by going to www.mywallstreet.com and logging in with the same credentials you use on the My Wall Street app. If you're a new user, you can also sign up here to get a three-day free trial of our service. Um, and one more thing, I just want to remind you again that the upcoming in-person event in New York City is next week. This one-day live event will take place on November 8th, and there are only six seats left, so make sure you click the link in the notes for today's show to get your place. Uh, jargon Busters, the first question we have today, it's, it's one we actually get quite commonly here, and it's not specifically about investing, but it's asking about the numerous brokerages that are out there and the kind of race to zero in terms of um, commission fees. Emmett, what, what do you think this means for, I suppose, investors and the market in general? Mm. I'm having a deja vu here, so apologies if I told the story before where JT, my co-founder, and I sat on Wall Street a few years ago in a room full of suits who scoffed at Robin Hood 
uh, and the wisdom from that room was that the guys at Robin Hood were fools and that their business was a fast track to bankruptcy. Yeah. Whereas JT and I thought differently as we'd spoken to their founders and knew they were being backed all the way. Yeah. Um, and it was really around that time that we decided there was no way my Wall Street was going into competition with Robin Hood uh, or we, we had no interest in becoming a broker dealer because mm. there was a race to zero. So here four or five years later and Robin Hood uh, can take credit for having completely disrupted the traditional revenue model for brokers and they have all all the big ones have effectively collapsed their trade fees to zero. Yeah. I think Schwab was the, the yeah. way to speak. Yes, that's right. And I mean, it's amazing because we, uh, JT and the team and I spent the longest time negotiating with these, with various brokers in New York for deep integration into the My Wall Street app. And we wanted zero as the default commission. And yeah. it, it really, they were unwilling to budge. But when you get someone like Robin Hood who grabbed market share and is starting to steal I presume, more valuable clients than they all responded. So really, this is a wonderful time for retail investors. Yeah. This is really, really good news. And if I had to guess what I've paid TD Ameritrade uh, since I got going at 10 bucks a throw, I have at least paid TD Ameritrade $10,000 wow. since I got started as a stock investor. Yeah. At least. And in, I in just in fees. Just at 10 bucks a time. Yeah. So um, so that's a thousand trades mm. over 25 years. Easy. I'd say it's way more than that. Um, there's a huge level of erosion with stockbroker commissions in your portfolio that's not really felt at the time because it's like, oh, it's just 10 bucks, mm. you know. And, buying. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. I, I recall buying $100 worth of stock in the earliest part of my career and paying $10 for the privilege. And at the time, thinking it was a good deal because mm. before brokers went online, I recall calling a stockbroker in New York um, uh, from my family home and the, the commissions they were charging was ludicrous, yeah. absolutely ludicrous. So over the long term... Uh, commissions are very corrosive to an individual investor's returns. Yeah. I think it's a great time. It's a renaissance for retail <laughs> investors that you can invest 100 bucks and 100 bucks goes straight into the business that you have selected as opposed to 90 bucks. Cool. Um, the next question we have then is on CEOs. Rory, I'm going to bring this to you. So over the last week or so, we've seen CEOs of three of the companies in our app, Under Armour, Nike and ServiceNow, all leave their posts or swap posts in the case of uh, Nike and ServiceNow. Um, we often talk about the the importance of a good CEO in a business and how in some cases an entire investment thesis can be made on the case of a good CEO. What does it mean if for a business if a CEO is leaving? Well, a uh, an investment should never be made just on a CEO. Because <laughs> uh, I, I, I basis for yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, like that was there was was it, it wasn't this week. It was two weeks ago, wasn't it? Or, or last, last week? week yeah. Where in the space of basically twenty four hours, three CEOs of three companies we follow all either stepped down or moved on. Um, the first was Kevin Plank, who after twenty three years at Under Armour. Uh, you know, built which he built into a twenty billion dollar business, and mm. then sadly watched it turn into a ten billion dollar business. Um, he is step he's stepping aside. He's going to retain the role as executive chairman, and I think kind of brand ambassador. Yeah, uh, he's being replaced uh, by the current COO, uh, a guy called Patrick Frisk. Yeah, uh, who when he took the job a couple of years was a bit, just over a year ago now, maybe a bit longer. I was delighted he's uh, a real superstar in apparel retail. He is kind of credited with saving 
um, Timberland, the brand. Yeah. Uh, he was working with uh, Echo, or no, sorry, Aldo. Uh, yeah. Aldo stores uh, in Canada really um, made them, brought them back up to greatness. Um, but it kind of sadly, you know, when he, they announced that, uh, that, Plank was leaving the stock jumped like 6% yeah and that's just that's not what you want to see as a CEO that like that's how little confidence the market had in you and I think you know he'd been he'd been seen as quite ineffective over the last couple of years he'd made some mistakes with kind of expanding the company too fast but like it's worth remembering that in their first year Under Armour did $17,000 worth of sales and last year they did 5.2 billion so you know he clearly was a incredible operator yeah. and brought the company to an amazing place um and then, you know, just later on that day, Nike's announced that Mark Parker, who's been there since 2006, will be stepping down. Not the founder, but, but kind of acted very much like a founder. Yeah. Uh, he's going to be replaced by John Donahue, who was the CEO of ServiceNow. Still is the CEO of ServiceNow until January, but another company we follow. And that was an interesting one because John Donahue was definitely one of those CEOs that I, I wouldn't say all of our investment thesis <laughs> landed on, but he just was one of these, again, superstar CEOs who... Yeah. You wouldn't want anyone other than him running a business that you invest in. He just gets everything right all the time. And in fact, ServiceNow was a company that he had come across while he was uh, the CEO of eBay and decided when he saw the product that that's the company he wants wow. to be the CEO wow. of. So that was that was kind of a, a great endorsement of the business. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, do, do CEOs matter? Of course they do. Uh, you know, it was about five years ago when we were first putting stocks in this app that we looked at kind of people like Kevin Plank and people like Steve Ells from Chipotle and thought, you know, these are the guys who yeah. are the superstar CEOs of their time. Yeah. Um, and both of them are now gone. The the replacement for Steve Ells, Brian Nichol, has done an amazing job at Chipotle. Yeah, it's an incredible job. An incredible turnaround. Um, yeah, I think the stock's more than doubled. Since, no, it's way more than doubled. I think it's up like 200% since, uh, wow. since he took over. Um, and they just posted same source sales of eleven percent, which is incredible for the for the restaurant business these days. Um, so yeah, I mean, like when you, I think you know, a CEO isn't everything, but it's definitely the 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 vision of the company going forward. And, and sometimes, perhaps when CEOs have been there for a long time, that that vision gets kind of diluted, or or they they lose sense of of where the business is going, or, yeah. or take a misstep and needs to be corrected and. Yeah, I mean, you, you always want to see uh, a strong CEO with a good track record coming in. And more than that, you kind of want to feel like they're people of kind of integrity and that they're going to, you know, Absolutely, they're yeah. going to look after your money as as well as they would look after their own. And um, that's really what you look for. It's the only way, and it's very hard to judge as well, obviously, mm. you know. You just have to look at someone's track record, listen to them on earnings calls, get a sense of do they know the industry, do they know their business, and... and do you trust them? I mm. suppose is, is even more important than yeah. all of those things to put put together. Um, no, Adam Newman's obviously. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. Um, cool. So that was a Jargon Buster's question about CEOs. Let's move on now to elevator pitch. So, seeing as we were talking about p- potential acquisitions already earlier in the podcast, the elevator pitch for this week is: What company in our shortlist of stocks do you think could be acquired next, and by whom? Um, Emmett, go to you first. Okay, well, I'm, do you think well, I'm not being lazy next? here, but I have for the longest time thought iRobot was ready to be acquired by Google for Google. so long time. And the reason is that if you look at what Google has bought in the past, whether it's Nest or Rumours now, Fitbit, uh, where these businesses, uh, I suppose argument are, is that they have data, huge data. Well, iRobot now have a map of the inside of everybody's home. And to me, that's a perfect fit in the Google family. 
I don't go so far as to say that I'd be quite surprised if Google don't try and make a, uh, a purchase um, of iRobot or even Apple. Okay, Apple might work a bit better with well, the, the name. name. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so that is iRobot acquired by Google. Rory. Yeah, so with the disclaimer that I made earlier, that prediction. <laughs> yeah, <exactly. laughs> um, predicting M&A is incredibly difficult. Um, I, I look to a couple of companies. I think, you know, Amazon's obviously always one that you kind of think of as a acquirer of businesses and there's loads of businesses I think Amazon would love to own. Um, the one I settled on though was Roku. Okay. And the reason I think, I was kind of thinking like what are what is Amazon really, really good at? And what they're really good at is, is wedging themselves in between the demand and the supply uh, of any kind of de- of any kind of consumer uh, deal. And I think that I think they've probably had a good go at making their own content and creating their own video streaming service. But it hasn't really made a dent in on Netflix. Owning Roku would put them right in the middle of Netflix and the consumer. Yeah. We put them in the middle of Apple TV and the consumer. Put them in the middle of Disney Plus and the consumer, and it would help massively with their advertising business going forward, which I think is a big thing they're going to focus yeah. on. It would give them a big boost in their their video. Okay, um, I think I'd have to pick the the iRobot Google one purely because I don't want Roku to be acquired. <laughs> I really don't. Uh, but, but that's only my personal opinion. So that's about it from this week's Stock Club. Um, don't forget about all the great new stuff in the Wall Street app at the moment and that you can also access my Wall Street on the web from now on. Um, if there's anything you want us to talk about or discuss in the next podcast, please make sure to get in touch with us on Twitter. That's at MyWallStreetHQ or email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. That's P-O-D at MyWallStreet.com. Don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club. And if you're enjoying us, please leave a review for us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on. From all of us here, we'll talk to you in two weeks. Happy investing. <laughs>